right. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to Eaglebrook Church. Really good to have you with us today at all of our campuses. We are in the fourth and final week of a series called How the Mighty Fall. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but so far, everybody that we've looked at, it hasn't ended well for them. In week one, King Uzziah thought he was above the law, and he could do whatever he wanted to do, and that ended up with him getting leprosy and living his life in isolation. In week two, King Solomon married a bunch of women who did not worship God, and it divided, it split the kingdom of Israel. And then last week, King Saul ended his own life by running a sword through himself in battle. So if you're keeping score at home, this is leprosy and isolation, divided kingdom, sword run through in battle. You might have started to think the title of this series was How the Mighty Fall and Never Ever Get Back Up Again, which is why today's message is so important. Today's message is titled How the Mighty Fall and Get Back Up. Have you ever had a time in your life when you thought, I will never get another chance? I just blew it, I I won't get another chance, and there's no use of ever trying again. My son Hudson is playing on a basketball team this spring that's in an urban area. And right away, I noticed that all the dads on this team are amazing handshakers. I don't know how they just naturally know how to do this, but they'll approach each other and they'll be, hey, what's up? And they'll go, boom, like real strong here. They pull each other in for kind of a fist bump. But it's not like a fist this way. It's always on the side this way. Then there's this cool, like, downward motion into a smooth release. I shake hands like a guy from Ham Lake, Minnesota. I'm like, hi there, how you doing? Nice to meet you. You It's very stiff. But I'm trying to be cooler. I'm almost 40 years old, so this is getting more difficult by the day. But I'm trying to be cooler. And so when the assistant coach approached me one day and went like this, I thought, this is my chance. This is my chance to show that I can do the cool handshake. So I went in, but I just did not commit. I went in too soft. He stuck the landing. I went limp noodle at just the wrong time. It was so bad that he actually called me out on it. He was like, that was terrible. We need to do that again. So right there, for a second time, we went in again to do another handshake. The second one was even worse than the first. Thankfully, he didn't say anything to me about it this time. But when he got up to leave and we were done talking, he went like this. As if to say, you can touch your fist to my fist, can't you? You're not that uncoordinated, are you? I felt like I was back in college again. Everybody's out on the dance floor break dancing, and I'm doing my version of the running man. You know, I'm like, come on, everybody. But I didn't want to do the fist bump. I wanted to show him that I could do this. And so I rejected his fist bump and I went like this. As if to say, hey, we're we're doing this again. This is my third time. And so I went in hard this time. I pulled him in, but I was off balance. (laughs) It's really critical that you're not too spread out when you do that, I found. Because I kind of fell into him and I ended up rubbing his back. which was extremely awkward. And after that, then I just went into a handshake. I just could not help myself. I just went into a handshake. And I walked away and I thought, Strand, you are a total failure. The next time he sees you, he's giving you a thumbs up from five feet away, you know? (laughs) Have you ever felt that way before? Ever thought to yourself, I'm never gonna get another chance? 
Sadly, when most of us, myself included, think about the answer to that question, we think about a whole lot more than just a messed up handshake. Have you ever had a time in your life where you felt like you had failed? Has there ever been a decision that you made, maybe a recent decision, maybe a decision from many years ago, that you thought, oh, I would do anything to take that back? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you thought, I am never going to get another chance? I just, I want another chance, but I'm never going to get one. Another chance at that tryout, another chance at that interview or that audition, another chance at love or that relationship. Here's what I want to remind you of today. I want to remind you of the very simple truth that your failure is not final. Bill Gates was a high school dropout whose first business venture failed. Steve Jobs was originally let go from Apple computers. Albert Einstein was not able to speak fluently until he was nine years old. He grew up with his peers calling him stupid. Abraham Lincoln grew up in poverty. He had a nervous breakdown in his 30s, and then in 1856, the first time he ran for president, he lost. But each of them discovered something important. They discovered that their failure was not final. This is true for people in the Bible as well. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and falsely accused of a crime he never committed. David had multiple moral failures. Elijah the prophet was criticized and attacked every time he tried to do what God had asked him to do. But each of them found out that even though they may fail, God will never fail them and that their failure was not final. Which leads to the question I want to ask today, which is this. Why is it that some people seem to have this ability to bounce back from failure while other people don't? I think the answer to that question is found in one word, and the word is hope. What is hope? Well, hope is not wishful thinking. It's not positive thinking. It's not goal setting. Hope is not some Pollyanna, close your eyes, just hope for the best kind of attitude. Like the guy who was falling off a 20-story building. Halfway down, somebody opened up the window, and they said, how's it going? He said, well, so far, so good. That's not hope. That is a naive stupidity. Hope is a confident expectation in Jesus Christ. Hope believes that Jesus rose from the dead, offers eternal life, and promises that he will work all things for the good for those who love him. Look what Billy Graham has to say about hope. He says, for the believer, there is hope beyond the grave. Because Jesus Christ has opened the door to heaven for us by his death and resurrection. If I were to ask you, what's the worst thing that could happen to you in your life? I think that most of you would say something related to death. You'd say, well, it's my own death or my kids or my parents, but somehow that's what you would talk about. For the believer in Jesus Christ, even in death, even beyond the grave, there is hope which means that your worst failure in this life, your worst mistake, there is still hope for you. And not just in the next life to come, but Jesus offers you that hope today. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your failure is not final? 
I want to take you to a man today who knows a thing or two about failure. His name is Peter, and Peter was out fishing on the Sea of Galilee one day when this stranger named Jesus yelled out to him from the shore. And Jesus said these words. He says, come, be my disciple, which essentially means come and follow me. And he says, and I will show you how to fish for people. The text says that immediately Peter dropped his nets and began to follow Jesus. Now just think about that for a moment. Of all the billions of people who have lived or will live on planet Earth, Peter was the one man chosen to lead the church and to fish for people. He wasn't qualified for this. He wasn't educated for this. God just chose him. And for the next three and a half years, Peter had a front row seat. He got to see every miracle. The feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the calming the storm. Peter had a front row seat for all of it. And then one night, the night before he was to be arrested, Jesus was having dinner with Peter and the other disciples, and he told them that I will be crucified and die. And here was Peter's response to Jesus. He said, Lord, I am ready to die for you. Jesus answered, die for me? And that really was the tone. It's like, are you kidding? Die for me? He says, no, Peter, actually, before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. When I was in college, there was this controversy amongst Bible scholars about whether or not God knew the future in its entirety. And there were some who said, a small minority said, no, no, I don't think that God knows the future in its entirety. And the way that they explained away this verse is they said, well, Jesus just knew Peter's tendencies. He knew that Peter was the kind of guy who was going to fold under pressure, and so he was able to play the odds and read the tendencies, and that's how he was able to predict that Peter would deny him three times. And I remember reading this and thinking, yeah, but he says three times. Not two, not four, three. And then he says a rooster will crow. I mean, how would he know that if he didn't know the future in its entirety? And so I came to believe that God knows everything, past, present, and future. And here's why this is important for you and for me. God knows every failure, sin, and mistake that you have made in the past. And he also knows every sin, failure, and mistake that you will make in the future. And yet he loves you just the same. And he wants to choose you and to use you. Back to the story of Peter, Jesus is led to the office of the high priest, and Peter kind of follows along behind to see what's going to happen. And so Peter is standing in the courtyard, warming his hands by a fire. And there's other people there, and so this teenage girl who's standing next to him, she goes, wait a minute, aren't you one of those guys that was with Jesus? And Peter's like, oh, no, I don't even know that guy. That was denial number one. The next verse says this. So as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, they asked him again, aren't you one of his disciples? I am not, he said. But one of the household servants of the high priest asked, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it. And immediately a rooster crowed. Any roosters crowing in your life? You said to God, you know what, God, I am not going to worry about this. I'm not going to doubt you. I am going to pray, and then you didn't. 
Or maybe it's that moment when your sin gets exposed. And all of a sudden, what you had been hiding comes into the open, and people find out, and it's like there's a rooster that's crowing in the background. Or maybe for you, you felt like God wanted you to talk to someone about your faith and about Jesus, but you got embarrassed. You got ashamed. My son Hudson, when he was in kindergarten, he took a field trip to see uh, Sesame Street Live. And I went along as a chaperone, and I don't mean this to offend you if you're a big Sesame Street Live fan, but it was boring as all get out. I saw a couple of kindergarten girls who were like, Elmo, you know, they were just going crazy for Elmo. But other than that, everybody was bored. I was bored. All the boys were bored. It was all singing. At one point, they had these chickens that popped up out of these uh, garbage can cylinders. They weren't real chickens. They are you know, obviously fake. And they would get up, and they would dance, and they would sing, and then they would go back down into the garbage can. So I saw this, and I thought, here's my chance to get Hudson and the boys engaged a little bit. So the next time the chicken popped up, I went, pew, 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 <laughs> and started shooting at the chickens. And I'll tell you what, it worked. I mean, the next time those chickens popped up, Hudson and the boys were like, and they were just blasting away. Right up until this mom, who was sitting two rows in front of me, turned around and she said, you stop that right now. What is wrong with you boys? And they looked at me like, you're going to say something here? You kind of started this whole thing. You know, this is sort of your idea. Why don't you back us up a little bit? But I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. And so I leaned over to the kid on my other side and pretended like he was my son. <laughs> and he was like picking his nose, but I didn't care. I'm like, I'm going with you. And I'm not associated with these other boys at all. The best part was my wife went to a PTO meeting a couple of weeks later, and this woman approached her and she said, I was at the Sesame Street Live event, and you wouldn't believe it, but there was boys there shooting at the chickens. My wife said, no. She said, yes, and none of the other parents even did anything to stop it. And then she added these words. She said, it's not like they were hunting. They were shooting at those chickens. you're shooting at a chicken, you could call that hunting. But now, maybe it was my bad to make a pretend gun and shoot at a not real chicken. If it was, you know, I, I'm sorry for that. But when I got called on it, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I pretended like I had nothing to do with those boys. You ever done that to Jesus? You're talking to someone, and you can just tell that they don't necessarily agree with you about Jesus or about the Bible, so you find yourself saying things that you don't even believe. Or maybe you go to school, and you see one of your friends from youth group, and you were just hanging out with them the night before, and they're like, hey, how you doing? And you're like, I'm not really that good of friends with him. I don't know why he's getting so excited. Or maybe you're at work, and one of your coworkers is being made fun of for their faith. And you sort of stick in the background and just laugh along with everybody else. That's Peter. Three different times Peter denies even knowing who Jesus is. This is the same Jesus who calmed the storm that was about to capsize the boat that Peter was in. 
This is the same Jesus who reached out and rescued Peter and prevented him from drowning. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, it adds this interesting detail. It says that as Jesus was being led out of the office of the high priest, it's at that moment that the rooster crowed. Here's what it says in Luke. It says, at that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. They made eye contact with one another. Then Peter remembered what the Lord had said. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, Peter, you will deny me three times. And Peter left the courtyard crying bitterly. In one stare, Peter's sin was exposed. And it says that he wept bitterly. Some of you have felt that. You've said something, you've done something, and almost immediately later you thought, why did I just do that? And you have regretted it. You have wept bitterly. And you thought at that moment it was over. And Peter thinks it's over. But let me tell you something. When you follow a man who rose from the grave and defeated death, it is never over. Even when the rooster crows, it's not over. Even in your worst failure, it is not over. It is never over. In fact, John 21 begins with this one word. It says, later. And the good news for you and for me today is that there is always a later. Later, after Jesus had risen from the dead, Peter says to the other disciples, he says, I'm going to go fishing. He's like, I failed as fishing for men. Now I'm going to go back to fishing for fish. And maybe you've had that where you just think, gosh, I can't do anything right. I mean, I failed over here. I failed over there. It says that Peter fished all night and he could not catch any fish. And towards the morning, as he was about to turn back, he sees this man on the shore and the man calls out, hey, have you caught any fish? And of course, that man was Jesus. And I love that Jesus asked him that question because Jesus knew the answer. I think if Jesus was ever going to stick it to Peter for his betrayal, that was his way of doing it. Hey, have you caught any fish? No, I think thanks for bringing that up, though. And then Jesus calls out, well, why don't you try fishing on the other side of your boat? Now, I'm not a professional fisherman, and some of you would know this better than I do, but back then, fishing boats were about five feet wide tops. So it's not like there's going to be no fish on this side of the boat and then like hundreds of fish on the other side of the boat. And Peter is a professional fisherman. He's been fishing all night. So he's going, what do you mean, throw my net on the other side of the boat? I mean, I've tried this side of the boat, that side of the boat, this side of the boat. I've fished the whole lake. There's no fish. But with Jesus, it's always worth another shot. Even when you feel like you've come up empty, even when you feel like there's no use trying again, it's always worth another cast. And sure enough, they can hardly pull these nets into the boat. There is so much fish. And that's when Peter realizes who that man on the shore is. It says in the next verse that when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic for he had stripped for work. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read things in the Bible and I go, why is that in the Bible? Why do we need to know that he had no clothes on and he was fishing you know, naked and had to put his clothes on? The only thing I can think of here is that John wrote this gospel. John was Peter's friend. And I think John's sitting there going, 
for 2,000 years, people are going to know what you were doing that night. I'm just going to put this in. And somehow God let him do it. I don't know why God let him do it, but he did. He said, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and swam ashore. After breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Now let me just pause here for a moment, because when your parents said your full name, your first, middle, and last, that wasn't necessarily a good thing, was it? If I say to my oldest son, Micah, Jonathan, Strand, that means he's in trouble. But I don't think that's the tone that Jesus is using here. I think his tone was tender. Simon Peter, son of John. He's reminding him that before he was a failure at fishing for men, Jesus knew his name. And Jesus loved him and knew what he would do, and he chose him and wants to use him anyway. It goes on, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. In other words, tell people about me. Help feed people in their faith. It says, Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Once more, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Now, why did Jesus ask the same question three different times? Well, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times, and so three times Jesus restores him. In fact, the word that John uses to describe the charcoal fire that they were making breakfast over that morning is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used in John chapter 18 to describe the fire that Peter was warming his hands over when he denied knowing Jesus. The connection would have been unmistakable for John's readers. Jesus is saying to Peter, you may have denied me, but I will not deny you. You may have failed me, but I will not fail you. Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? And when he was able to say yes, Jesus looked at him and he said, will you get back up? You get back up. I am not done with you yet. You cannot change your past, but I can change your future. I am going to use you to lead the church. You're going to preach messages where thousands of people are going to come to faith. Your failure is not final. And I believe that God may want to say that to some of you today. That he may want to look you in the eye and say your full name, first, middle, and last. And then he would ask you, do you love me? And when you are able to say, Lord, you know I love you. I'm so sorry for what I did, but God, you know from the bottom of my heart, I love you. Then he would say to you today, get back up. Get back up. I am not done with you yet. Your failure is not final. The best is yet to come. When my wife and I were getting our house ready to sell, uh, she put this decorative sign that says the best is yet to come up in our bathroom, but she put it over our toilet. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't know if it's just me who thinks these things, but I said, somebody's going to make fun of that. Somebody's going to walk into our bathroom for a showing. They're going to see the sign, look at the toilet. They are going to make fun of that. 
But she bought this for me on our anniversary several years ago. And we had had a hard year for our lives. We had some health issues in our family. And it was a year of stress and pressure on our marriage. And so she bought this to remind us that when you have Jesus Christ in your life, the best is always yet to come. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Let me ask you, do you believe that? That no matter how hard of a year it's been in your marriage and how many tears you have cried, that Jesus says there is coming a day when there will be no more tears, the best is yet to come. That no matter how much physical pain you've been in this year and how poor your health has been, that Jesus says there is coming a day when there will be no more pain, the best is yet to come to come, that no matter who you lost this year, a loved one, that Jesus says there is a day coming when death will lose its victory, the best is yet to come. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive of what God has prepared for those who love him. I think the, most, the four most discouraging words in the English language are things will never change. Things will never change. My marriage will never change. My kids will never change. My health is never going to change. I'm going to be single for the rest of my life. My career is stuck. I guess it's just how things are going to be for me. Things will never change. You ever thought that before? In an area of your life? My wife and I have four kids between the ages of six and 12, and a few months ago, I was vacuuming up popcorn in our living room that they had spilled everywhere, and then I went and swept up underneath our dining room floor for the third time that day, and I thought, things will never change. I mean, I'm just going to be picking up messes and doing laundry for the rest of my life, and then I started to daydream a little bit. I thought, you know, when the kids get out of the house, I'll be able to come home and just watch a Twins game. And I won't have to rush out the door to practice. And I thought, you know, I'll be able to read a book uninterrupted. And I'll be able to have dinner and not listen to bodily functions. And I even started to do the math in my head. I thought, well, my youngest son Jasper is six years old, so when he's 18, that's just 12 years from now. Anybody can make it through 12 years, right? The next night, we were over at my parents' house, and my wife went into their storage closet, and she came out with a high chair. And I said, what are you doing? She said, well, my friend Nicole just had a baby, and I think she might need a high chair. I said, Nicole had that baby like six months ago. I said, if she doesn't have a high chair now, she's just got the kid on the floor. She's tossing the food in. I said, she's fine. She does not need another high chair. I said, that's just going to collect dust at our house. Don't take it. And we got in this argument. But when we got home, Sarah called me into our bedroom. And sitting on our bed was the high chair. And on top of it was a positive pregnancy test. And Sarah said, the high chair wasn't for Nicole. I took this test right before we went to your parents' house. She said, I'm pregnant. I said, you're what? 
She said, I'm pregnant. I said, how? How does this happen? Now, we had never closed the door on having more kids, but it's been kind of a chaotic season. And so I found myself initially in a cold sweat. And Sarah actually hugged me later. She's like, oh, you actually are sweating. And I found myself nervous and worried about things that I'm not normally nervous and worried about. I started thinking, how are we going to afford this? And do we have enough bedrooms and those sort of things? But before bed that night, my wife said to me, she said, you know, we need to trust God. This is part of God's plan and God's design. And she said, you know, the Bible says that children are a blessing from the Lord. And we don't hear that a whole lot in our culture today. But this child is a gift. And I thought, you know something, she's right. That I've always said when my oldest son and when all my kids head off to college someday, it's going to be one of the saddest days of my life. I'm not going to rush home and turn on the twins. I'll probably spill popcorn all over the floor and then just vacuum it up, (laughs) crying the whole time. And so the next morning, it was Easter. And so to tell our kids that we were having this baby, we did it in kind of a creative way. We did an Easter egg hunt with clues in the Easter egg. And so the first clue was, Jesus brings new life. Right over their head. I mean, they had no idea. Move on to the second clue. I don't even remember what the second clue was. The third clue was, there's a little bunny in mommy's tummy. And they stared at us for like 45 seconds. And then finally, one of them was like, wait, wait. Are, are, you, are, you having, are we having a baby? Are, are you pregnant? And we said, yes, we're having our fifth child. Mommy is due in December. Later on that day, three of my four kids said to me, Dad, this is the best day of my life. And when I heard them say that, there was something that shifted in me. One of my kids said that to me as we were waiting to see the movie, I Can Only Imagine great movie. It came out a couple of months ago in the theaters. It's a Christian movie, and it's about the song, I Can Only Imagine. Number one billboard bestseller, best hit. And this, the movie is about the author of that song, and it's about the life story that he had. See, he grew up in a really challenging, difficult situation. His father was abusive to him. And there's one scene in the movie where the son bikes around and finds a bunch of scraps, and he puts them together into a rocket ship. And it's like his one toy. And he gets home, he's going through the house, and his dad grabs it and throws it in the fire out back. There's another scene in the movie when his father is physically abusive to him. But at the end of his father's life, his dad starts to listen to him singing on the radio. And he tells his son that when the singing was over, he would listen to what the pastor had to say. And he asked God to forgive him. And he enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the father actually starts reading the Bible. And he doesn't understand what a lot of it says, but he understands enough of it. And his life begins to change. I want to show you a clip from the trailer of this movie, and specifically, I want you to listen to what the son has to say about his dad. Take a look. It's an amazing song. Just kind of happened. 
Took about 10 minutes, I guess. Bart, you didn't write this song in 10 minutes. Took a lifetime. How'd you do this? You know, I've never told anybody my story. When I was uh, 11 years old, life was tough. Where's Mama? She's gone. She don't want me no more. And she don't want you neither. And I've always loved music. And I found some songs that I just, I held on to. They gave me hope. Mercy me, that can't be his real voice. Because I needed it. Dad, I can do this. No, you can't. And you're going to blink your eyes, and you're going to realize that life has gotten you nowhere because you chased some stupid dream. What are you running from? My dad. Then write about it. Let that pain become your inspiration. I got some stuff I need to sort out. And I deal with it the only way I know how. And that's to write a song. Hungry? I uh, set the table. What is this? I want to make things right with you and me. God, can't forgive everybody else. Why can't he forgive me? My dad was a monster, and I saw God transform him. You have a gift, real gift. I didn't think that God could do that. And so I wrote this song for my dad. Today is Father's Day, and there are probably many of you who, like me, have a great dad that you get to celebrate today, but there are maybe others of you who had a hard relationship with your father. For all of you who are dads, I want to remind you today that your failure is not final. That every single dad fails in moments of their life. And I have failed many times. And when you fail in that way with your kids, you start to think to yourself, you know, things will never change. You will never change. Look at what you've just done. You can never take that back. You can never repair that. And I want you to hear the voice of God in your life today that says your failure is not final. And that he may want to look you in the eye. And he may want to say your full name. First, middle, and last. And he would ask you, do you love me? And if you can say, yes, God, you know I do. And I'm so sorry for what I did, God, but I truly, I love you. Then I believe he would say to you, get back up. You get back up because I am not done with you yet. You cannot change your past, but I can change your future. And your failure is not final. If you feel like you have failed in any area of your life, first thing you need to do is to repent. You need to say, God, forgive me. 
You need to turn away from what you did. And then you need to reflect. And you might need the help of a pastor or a counselor or a mentor to do that, but you need to ask yourself, what can I learn from this? And then finally, you need to restore. You need to know that God can transform your life. You may not be the dad that you hope to be today, but God can turn you into that father tomorrow. It's by his power and his grace. When you turn towards God and you begin to read the Bible like that man in the movie did, I love when he says, if God can forgive everyone else, then why can't he forgive me? And why can't he forgive you? I believe today that God wants to remind you that your failure is not final. Let's stand and pray together at all of our campuses. God, thank you for our fathers. Some of us have great dads who have really allowed us to become the person that we are today. They've encouraged us. They've lifted us up. They've taught us about you. God, others of us have fathers that it's kind of painful to think about that relationship. Remind them today, Jesus, that you are a perfect heavenly father. No matter what their relationship with their dad is like, you love them. You're proud of them. God, for those of us who are dads right now, Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your forgiveness. And we thank you for the opportunity to influence our kids and just the privilege of being a dad. God, I love being a dad. It's one of my favorite things in life. I'm so grateful for it. And Lord, for everyone here today who feels like there's an area of their life that they have failed in and they're having a hard time getting back up, God, I pray that they would hear your voice saying their first, middle, and last name. And then you tell them you get back up because you are not done using them yet, God. And their failure is not final. We thank you that we get to serve and follow a God who rose from the dead and for whom the best is always yet to come. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. If you need prayer, come on down front. Otherwise, have a great day, everybody.